In my house, most of you would know this, but we have three small children, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. Yeah, it's crazy. But there is one thing that Bethany and I can do to get my kids' attention and to keep them engaged for a little while. Now, there are several things that will get my son Cole's attention, one of which is football, which he's very excited about today. But that's not it. It's not promising them dessert, although that does help some. It's not playing board games with them. Go Fish is the game of choice right now. If you've never played it, I suggest you do. It's exciting. If we want to sit down and have the kids' full attention, have them relatively quiet and tame for a period of time, we tell them a story. And this is not because I'm some award-winning storyteller. That's not it at all. Far from the truth. It's actually the stories themselves that get my kids' attention and hold on to them. Stories come in all shapes and sizes. Right now, with the two older kids, Caitlin and Cole, the six- and the four-year-old, we're reading them the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, if you've never read that, even as an adult, you really should. It's fabulous. Stella, the one-year-old, is growing to like stories, and right now she likes this little book, it's her favorite, called The Pout-Pout Fish. The Pout-Pout Fish pouts all the time and spreads gloom and despair until, this is the good part of the story, a nice fish comes up and kisses the pout-pout fish, and then he goes around and spreads cheerfulness everywhere. It's a great story, and she loves it. <laughs> one of the more challenging things we've tried with stories, one of the experiments we've tried is, I'll ask the kids to give me two characters. It can be anything they want. I got this from a book I read uh, this past year. I'll ask them to give me two characters, and... I will try to take the characters and weave them into a story. Now, if you think you have a perky imagination, you should try that sometimes. It's very, very difficult. One time I got a tiger and a hummingbird. Good grief. <laughs> Not easy. But good stories are very difficult to make up. And when we find good stories, we ought to value them. Stories are important. A lot of times we think of stories as something for small children, when in reality, stories move all of us in a significant way. Stories are important because we remember them. And it's not just because we remember all the details of the stories. Stories are significant because they shape us from the inside out. We identify with the characters. We, we want to emulate the characters that we find in good stories. One author described stories as catechisms for our impulses. That's powerful. What you do naturally, your default setting, what comes to you in many ways comes from the stories you have listened to. Right now, stories, for good or for bad, are shaping my children. They're grooming my children's instincts, their expectations, their longings. Stories shape us and make us love certain things and make us hate certain things. Think about the stories that you love. Why do you love them? And don't try to tell me you don't love stories. You do. If you read books, if you watch movies, if you listen to personal interest stories on the television or radio, you like stories. Why do you love the stories that you love.
Well, there's a quote from J.R. Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings, that I want to read to you. And there's two characters that are talking in this, in this quote here. Frodo and Sam, and, and to make a long, long story short, Frodo and Sam are on a journey to rid the world of a great evil, if you've never read the books. All right? Here's what they say. Frodo, I can't do this, Sam. Sam responds, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. Now, it's not by accident that you and I love stories. We love stories because God made us to love stories because God is the original storyteller. He spoke words and life existed. Life came into being and a narrative began, a story began. Characters that God spoke took the stage. And then conflict happened in God's story. And then God crafted and penned His story toward the day when the sun will shine even brighter and the darkness will fully pass away. Now this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to open to Mark chapter 12. This is where we find a truly amazing story. It's a little story that Jesus tells. But the reason we're looking at this little story this morning is because this little story reflects and even summarizes so much of God's big story. So this morning, we want to sit at the feet of a great storyteller and we want to enjoy what Jesus Christ has to say. Now, when you tell a story, sometimes it ruins the story to sort of break it up into pieces and overanalyze it. Sorry to you English teachers out there, but sometimes it does ruin the story. Now, despite that, this morning... We are going to sort of break this up. I'm going to give you some points to hang your hat on so that you can follow along as we track with Jesus in this story. But the most important thing as you listen this morning is to engage with the story that Christ tells and allow this to shape your impulses, your expectations, and your affections. So here's what we're going to look at this morning. In Mark 12, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see four essential chapters of God's story that bring us to worship Him. Alright? Four essential chapters of God's story that bring us to worship Him. Now, first off, the first chapter, and this is by far the longest, so don't get nervous when we're like 20 minutes into this thing and we still haven't gotten to point two. But our first chapter is Christ's rejection. Okay? Christ's rejection. Now, we'll jump right in here. Mark 12, verse 1. You can see it's Jesus speaking, and he began to speak to them in 
parables. And we have to ask the question, if we parachute in in Mark 12, who is the them? Who is he telling this story to? We have to understand where Mark 12 fits in the life of Jesus. Mark 12 is right in the middle of the Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life. Just a couple of days earlier, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Obviously, you all are very familiar with the triumphal entry. But if you look back in Mark chapter 11 to the triumphal entry, there's a particular place that Jesus goes to as soon as he enters Jerusalem. Where is that place? Look back at Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. Right after the triumphal entry, Jesus enters, and here's what it says. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around, I love this, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. I love that. He just comes in, he looks at the temple, obviously a huge structure, looks around, takes notice of everything, and leaves the city. I love that. Mark does this, and he tells us this because he wants us to understand Jesus has his attention on the temple, and throughout Mark 11, 12, and 13, almost everything that Christ talks about, he talks about the temple. He wants us to understand that Jesus' attention is on the temple, but his attention is also on the leadership of the temple, those who are the religious authorities in Israel at this time. Now, after this, you know the story. Jesus comes back into Jerusalem the next day and cleanses the temple. He raises quite a ruckus. He gets into the courtyard. He starts turning tables over. He disrupts the flow of traffic, the animals that are being sold for sacrifices. And he tells the people who are gathered there that they have made a place, his father's dwelling place, that was meant for prayer. They have made that a den of thieves. Now, obviously, the religious authorities didn't take too kindly to Jesus doing that in their temple. And so at the end of Mark chapter 11, the religious leaders the next day come back to Jesus and they find him and they confront him in the courtyard of the temple. Look at verses 27 and 28 of Mark 11. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now what's happening here is these religious leaders are trying to assert their own authority. They want to make it clear that they don't believe that Jesus has any authority to do what he's doing. And then Jesus wisely answers and puts them in a very awkward situation. They want to find out where he has his authority from, and he says, Will you tell me this, and I'll answer you. What about the ministry of John the Baptist? Was that from heaven, or was that from men? And they have to answer one way or the other, and either way they answer it puts them in a predicament. If they say from heaven, well, then they're affirming that Christ's ministry is from heaven, and he does have authority. And if they say from men, then the people gathered around are going to be very, very upset with them. So all that happens at the end of Mark chapter 11, and that leads us directly into our passage 
in Mark chapter 12. So what you have is you have this entire background in Mark 11 of the religious authorities' hatred against Jesus. And even more than that, you have this entire background of the book of Mark and their hatred against Jesus. They want to take him down. So you get to Mark chapter 12, and you read this little phrase at the beginning of the chapter, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now, you may be tempted to ignore that little phrase there, that Jesus was talking to them in parables. Make no mistake, Jesus is standing in the courtyard of the temple, which is a massive structure, several football fields wide and long, a huge structure, and no doubt there would have been crowds gathered around Jesus and they would have witnessed this confrontation and listened to this story. But Jesus is telling this parable to the religious authorities. It's directed to them. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why would Jesus tell a parable to the religious leaders? A parable to the religious leaders. That seems odd. I want to say something that might surprise you this morning. Jesus did not tell parables in order to make everything clearer to the ones who were listening. Jesus did not tell parables in order to make everything clearer to the ones who were listening. Sometimes we get this image of Jesus as the master storyteller who spoke in parables in order to make it clear to the common man so they could understand him. Now, there's no doubt Jesus did take illustrations from nature, from culture, as you'll see in our parable this morning. And he did these things sometimes to make things clear, but often parables are not done, are not told to make things clearer. Oftentimes, parables are told to obscure the truth and to bring judgment on people who have rejected Christ's word. Lots of times that's what parables are for. They're to make it clear that the people who are listening are going to be judged for what they're doing and what they've done. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, so often when Jesus tells parables, the disciples come to him afterwards and they say, okay, what was going on there? We don't understand this. You're going to have to explain this to us. Parables are oftentimes told to keep the truth from people and not to make it clear. Still don't believe me. Go back to Mark chapter 4. Flip back there with me. And it's important that you understand this because it sets up this parable very nicely in Mark 12. Mark chapter 4. Now, we're going to read verses 10 through 12. But these verses come in the context of another famous parable that Jesus tells. This is the parable of the soil and the sower who cast his seed on the soil. You all have heard this parable so many times. The sower goes out, he throws his seed out, and it lands on different types of soil. Now, when you hear that, the meaning is obvious, right? The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he told it. Made it really clear, right? Look at verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. Apparently, it wasn't quite so obvious what this meant. 
And in this case, it wasn't just because the disciples were a little slow-witted. Read verse 11. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Huh. Verse 12. Here's why. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Now, verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Okay? Isaiah chapter 6 is a passage you should be familiar with. It's a passage where Isaiah is in the throne room of God. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up and exalted. And the angel flies over and puts the hot coal on his lips to purge his lips and make him able to speak. Let me read some verses to you from Isaiah 6. Remember what happens? Verse 8. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Wow. Man, we write songs about that. Wow, powerful. That's a missions verse if there ever was one. Here am I, Lord. Send me. But look what God tells Isaiah in the next two verses. Listen to this. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Well then, that was not the ordination call that Isaiah was looking for. God essentially tells Isaiah here that he's going to preach to the people and the people are going to slide further and further into sinfulness. The people were going to go further and further into hardness of heart. Now, At this point, you should be feeling some tension, because I know I do. What these verses are saying doesn't match up very well with what we know about God. What is going on here? Why is this happening? What's happening here is that we're not reading these verses in the full context. Isaiah chapter 6 didn't happen in isolation. If you doubt that God is just in bringing judgment against these people... Go back and read the first five chapters of Isaiah and just see how ungodly the nation of Israel had been and how God had so patiently been kind to them and to their leadership and they had rejected Him over and over and over again. So go back to Mark 4. Why does Jesus quote this in Mark 4 when He's talking about parables? Here's why. Jesus is telling his disciples that the way it was in the day of Isaiah is the way it's going to be in my ministry. I'm going to preach and people's hearts are going to get harder and more stiff. And if you read the first few chapters of the book of Mark, you can see how almost instantaneously the religious leaders hated Jesus. In fact, by Mark 4, there's already a death plot For Jesus, they want to kill him already. They hate him so much. And so, in Mark 4, Jesus teaches his disciples that he's going to give parables 
and it's going to continue to harden the hearts of those who are outsiders. They're going to see but not understand. It's like a man watching HGTV. He sees, but he does not understand. It is not clear to him why this is important. But, those who listen to the parables of Jesus with faith, it's a different story for them. That's why Jesus tells the disciples, to you it has been given to understand the mysteries. What's the difference? Well, what's the parable in Mark 4? It's about the soil of your heart. What's the difference between those that are hardened and those that are softened? It's the soil. The seed falls in the good soil and it grows up and produces plenty. The seed falls on the hard, the thorny soil, and nothing happens. It chokes the seed to death. In fact, in Mark 4, in verse 13, Jesus says to the disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? His point is these parables are not going to make sense to you unless your heart has been changed. Unless you come believing that I'm the Son of God. Unless you react with a good soil and with faith, these parables are not going to make sense to you. So in the days of Isaiah, the people's hearts were hard, and so they got harder. And in the days of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders' hearts were hard, and so they got harder. Unless your heart is soft and malleable, these parables are only going to harden it. So, go back to Mark 12. We'll get to the story in a minute here. This is all preparation. Back to Mark 12. Here's what we're saying this morning. Parables are like the bright sunlight of a July day. When the bright sunlight of a July day hits red, cracked, Virginia soil, it makes it more stiff and more dry. You don't believe me? Come look at my yard. (laughs) Okay? But when the sunlight hits a Crayola crown sitting in the dashboard of your minivan, it does something entirely different to it. It melts it, changes the form, changes the shape, makes it malleable and soft. So, as we listen to this parable this morning, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is the soil of my heart? Is it cracked, red, dry, Virginia clay? Or is it a Crayola crown? Sitting on the dashboard of the minivan, waiting to be melted and shaped and changed to a heart that loves the one who's telling this parable. Be careful how you listen this morning. Not because it's me, because it's the Word of God, and because it's all about the soil of your heart and how it responds. So, this brings us to the parable. He began to speak to them in parables. Here's what he says. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. 
Verse 2. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. We'll stop there. This sort of business arrangement was very common in this day. A landowner would have a vineyard that he wants to grow grapes out of. He wants it to produce fruit. And he would lease that vineyard to someone else, a tenant, a group of tenants, almost a company that would own the vineyard and would run the vineyard. And oftentimes the landowner wouldn't even stay there. He would head into a different area. He would go somewhere else. And he would expect that these tenants would give him some of the profits. Now, the normal method of payment during this time would have been that the landowner would have sent someone back and that servant, that slave, would have collected some of the fruit from the vineyard. And that would have gone back to the landowner. And, of course, the tenants would have kept some as well. But the tenants got payment for tending the vines and then the landowner got payment for leasing the land to them. It's a normal business deal during this time. Now, I'm not exactly a vineyard guy, but I do know vineyards from the ground up take several years to produce grapes. And so these tenants would have been on this land for probably three, maybe four or five years before it actually started to produce grapes. And so there's a break between verses 1 and verse 2. And so this helps us to understand that these tenants had been living there a long time. They'd been working this vineyard very hard. And so they assumed to some level that they had authority over this vineyard. Now, as you think about that vineyard, the setting of this whole story, this whole parable is very, very significant. And this is not the first time that a vineyard has been mentioned in Scripture. In fact, Isaiah chapter 5 right before Isaiah 6, tells us about another vineyard that was planted. Listen to this. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. Does this sound familiar? He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And then down in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in Isaiah, the vineyard is Israel. And in Isaiah, God brings judgment on the nation for disobeying. Different in Mark chapter 12. And here's the difference. Jesus places the judgment in a different place. It's not on the nation here necessarily. It's on the leadership. It's on those who are the temple authority. Make sure you see that difference. So, verses 1 and 2. Everyone listening would have acknowledged this setup, this business agreement that's going on. This would have been normal for them. Everything seems like it's going according to plan until we get to verse 3. In verse 3, things go horribly wrong. The landowner has sent his servant, and look at verse 3, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The servant arrives expecting to receive the fruit that his master is owed, 
And one commentator described the tenants as paying their rent in blows. They take this servant, they grab him, they beat him up, and they audaciously send him back to the landowner, essentially challenging his authority. So, verse 4, again, he sent them another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Obviously, a wound to the head would have been a serious wound, a serious blow. Look at verse 5. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. You can see the repetition of what's happening here and think about the, the patience and the graciousness of this landowner sending these servants to collect what is owed to him. Over and over again, he sends them to collect what is owed to him. And the pattern continues. They kill some, they beat some of them up, they treat them shamefully. Over and over again, this happens. Now, I hope you're kind of following this parable on two different levels here. One is the story that Jesus is actually telling, and the other is what it signifies. If you understand what it signifies, you know that Jesus is talking about the history of the nation of Israel. And he's talking about the prophets, the spokesmen of God who've been sent over and over again to call the leaders of the nation and the nation itself to repentance. And when you read this, if you're engaging with the story, there's a tendency to see both the tenants and the landowner as naive. I mean, what tenant takes a servant of a landowner and beats him up and kills some of his servants and sends them back to the landowner? And what landowner keeps sending his servants over and over again to these wicked, ungodly, violent tenants? Naive is not the right word, though, for either. The tenants are rebellious, and the landowner is patient beyond words. He continually sends his messengers over and over again to get what is owed to him. That brings us to the climax of the story. Verse 6. He had one more to send, a beloved son. When you read verse 6, I think you have to ask yourself this question. What farmer, what landowner in his right mind would send his son to a bunch of tenants who had acted like this over and over again? Why would he do this? Now, don't skip too quickly over that question. Ask it of yourself. Why did he do this? It doesn't make any sense for him to send his only son to these tenants. Why? For us, there's only one answer to that question. It's the great love of God for humanity in general and of his people in particular. As he sends his son, look what he says. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. He's the rightful heir. He carries the absolute authority of the landowner. They must 
listen to the Son. Notice how the Son is described here. He's the beloved Son. Now, if you've read the book of Mark, you know there are two places where someone is called a beloved Son. Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. And then Mark chapter 9, at the transfiguration, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. So Jesus wants us to understand very clearly here. He's talking about himself. This parable is about him. And it's about what's going to happen to him in the next few days. But look what happens in verses 7 and 8. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They killed the son. What audacity. And then they have the gall to take his body, not even bury him, throw it over the wall of the vineyard and leave it for the animals to devour. At this point, I'm sure the crowds were going, this story has reached just outrageous proportions. How can this even be? This is insane that this would happen. Look at verse 9. This comes logically enough, right? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. The landowner is going to bring swift and terrible judgment on these tenants. They've rebelled. They've rejected him for so long that the time has come. Their positions of authority and their whole system, their temple, is going to come crashing down. Now, This is where the parable ends. Verse 9. The tenants in this parable think when they kill the son that they've won. They think they're going to get the vineyard at this point. They think they've come out on top. But in the parable, this story can't go far enough to express what really happens. I mean, what if Jesus ended the parable this way? (laughs) What if he said, and the son rose from the dead judged the tenants and took possession of the vineyard and opened the way for all the nations to enjoy the fruit of his work. (laughs) Well, it doesn't really work in the parable here. So instead, this is what Jesus does. He goes to verse 10. Here's where he brings the lessons of this parable home for these leaders who have rejected him and also for us who love and who trust him. Verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner stone. Now Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 118 to make a long explanation as short as I can. Psalm 118 is about David and David's rise to to the throne. If you remember the life of David, David was rejected over and over again. When, he was, when, uh, when Samuel came to anoint, David wasn't even, anoint the next king, David wasn't even brought in. He was rejected by men. Saul tried to kill David over and over again. David's own son tried to kill him. David was rejected and rejected and rejected. 
And Psalm 118 talks about that rejection and then that rise to the throne. It's a pattern that is set. And Jesus understands that this pattern is going to be true of him as well. And he's applying this verse to himself and saying what was true of my forefather David is going to be true of me as well. I'm going to be rejected, but it's going to lead to some things. And this brings us to our second chapter in the story. And again, these are much shorter chapters. So first, we've seen Christ's rejection here. Second, we're going to see our salvation. Our salvation. Jesus made it clear in this parable that he's going to be rejected by men. And he's going to be killed by men. But the Old Testament pattern and the New Testament teaching of Christ tells us rejection leads to our salvation and Christ's exaltation. That's the pattern that is set. It says it right here in verse 10. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner stone. I think we have to ask ourselves, the cornerstone of what? Well, God has always desired to dwell with his people. In the Garden of Eden, he came and walked and talked with Adam and Eve. He had the nation of Israel build a tabernacle so he could dwell in their midst. Solomon built the temple so that God could dwell with his people. And now, in the New Testament, we are that temple. We are saved, and Christ, through his rejection, becomes the preeminent piece of that new temple. And that's you and I. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the glory of our salvation. God's Son is rejected. We are saved and we are made the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Because of Christ's rejection, we now have the Spirit inside of us. Because of Christ's rejection, we are now adopted as children of God. Because of Christ's rejection, we have open and full fellowship with God. It's an amazing thing. And this has been the plan of God in telling his story from the very beginning. And that leads us to our third chapter. We've seen Christ's rejection, our salvation, and now we will see Christ's exaltation. The stone, verse 10, which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. Christ's rejection leads to our salvation, but through all of that, He is exalted. He has become the cornerstone. He is the preeminent piece of this temple. Listen to Colossians 
And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. He receives the glory for obeying God the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Philippians 2 makes it abundantly clear that it's through that obedience to death that Jesus Christ is exalted. And everyone will bow and they will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this leads us to our last chapter of God's story. Christ's rejection, our salvation, Christ's exaltation, and then lastly, our response. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this whole story that has been unfolded before us? What do we do with this rejection by men and this exaltation by the Father? Look at verse 11. Quoting from Psalm 118, it says, This came about from the Lord. Our first response to this entire story is to know that this is not accidental. This whole thing has been planned by God the Father. This is not accidental. God planned this rejection and He planned that this rejection of Christ would be the pathway to Christ's preeminence as the chief cornerstone and it would be the pathway to our salvation as we're joined to Christ. And it's amazing because God's judgment on the the leadership of Israel is how God brings about Christ's rejection. And how he ends up bringing our salvation. This is God's doing. Listen, God does not get lemons handed to him and he makes lemonade out of them. Okay? That's not how it works. God is not reactionary. God made the lemons, the sugar, the water, the wood to build, the lemonade stand, and the customers who would drive by and stop and spend a dollar for the cup of lemonade. God does all of it, and He plans all of it, even the rejection of Jesus Christ. He did all of it so that we would be brought into His family. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone, and then this famous verse, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This story has been planned by God. And we're to recognize that. But lastly, and I think maybe most importantly, look at our response in verse 11. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. I hope you understand 
The Christian faith does not just consist in getting a list of doctrines in your mind correctly. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. The Christian faith is not simply a moral code by which we live the good life. It's not a list of rules, and that's it. This story that God is telling is breathtaking. It's amazing. This story should move us deeply as we interact with it. It should cause us to sing with passion and joy. This word, marvelous, is here for a reason. This word, marvelous, is something that's rich, something that's powerful, something that's moving. How do you explain this? I'm sure you've had moments in your life where something has been marvelous before. When is something marvelous? When you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you feel this mixture of terror because, wow, that edge is really close and just awe because, wow, look how big this is. I can't even fathom this. That's marvelous. When a loved one passes away and at the funeral you hear the gun salute and you think back over a lifetime of steady sacrifice and faithfulness and you get that feeling inside of pride and awe at what God has done. That's marvelous. When you're standing at the edge, at the end of an aisle and you see the doors fling open and you see your loved one dressed in white, that's marvelous. When you hear those little lungs scream for the first time as they fill with air, and the only thing you can do is laugh, that is marvelous. That's amazing. And the thing about all those examples I just gave you is those are all just shadows. Those are like the appetizers. Those are the foretaste of what's coming, of the reality of how marvelous this story is that God is working out. It's like the glow on Moses' face. It was a real glow, but it was fading away. And when you looked at that glow, you understood that there was one who caused his face to glow. And that one is the real deal. I told you we've been reading Chronicles of Narnia with our kids. And uh, C.S. Lewis is the author of that. And there's one passage that is just amazing to me. As Lewis describes the children hearing the name of Aslan. Now, if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a story about four children who end up in this magical land called Narnia. And there's a, there's a wicked queen who rules and animals talk in this land. And there's a bold lion who's kind of the centerpiece of the story, and this lion is a Christ figure for C.S. Lewis. And so in the story, the children are having a conversation with the beaver, as what, that's what happens in Narnia, and the beaver begins to talk about Aslan coming. And at this point in the story, not all of the children are excited about Aslan coming, but they have different reactions to him. Listen to this. 
the beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And then Lewis writes, And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or beginning of summer. It's beautiful. And those moments of sheer wonder point us to the greatest story, which is the story of Jesus Christ. Now listen, for some of you, it's been a long time since you've had that sense of wonder, that sense of being amazed by this story. Maybe some of you have never really had this sense of wonder before. Some of you come in here week in and week out. You don't even bother to sing. You're bored. You can't wait till we're done so that you can get to the restaurant first before everybody else. Bible reading is something you do because you feel guilty if you don't and you know you're supposed to so you can tell people that you read your Bible. Now, I'm not saying you have to bounce off the walls every Sunday with excitement and that your Bible reading should bring you to tears every single day. I know there are dry spells. But I'm saying this story is amazing. It should be marvelous in our eyes. And we should have these moments of waking up and realizing it's the holidays. It's the beginning of summer. God knows my name. Jesus Christ died for me. And that's marvelous. That's amazing. So what's the application for you today, for me? Know the story, love the story, and worship the one who tells the story. Let's pray.